0: Welcome to the America's 360 podcast. Get the inside scoop and the outside perspective on the latest developments from Canada, Latin America, and everywhere in between. America's 360 is a production of the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of America's 360. I'm your host, John Molesky. This program is brought to you by the world's number one think tank for regional studies. America's 360 is a collaboration among the Wilson Center's Argentina Project, Brazil Institute, Canada Institute, Latin American Program, and Mexico Institute. Well, since the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse in 2021, Haiti has faced a combination of challenges, gang violence, economic insecurity and a resurgence of cholera are just uh, to name a few as the Haitian government works to address these issues questions about what role if any the international community should play in providing support for Haitians both at home and abroad are on the table we're going to discuss those today Uh, joining us our stellar panel includes Wilson Center distinguished fellow Cindy Arntzen hi Cindy hey John Latin American program director Benjamin Godin hey Benjamin greetings John and of course, from north of the border, Canada Institute of Director Christopher Sands. Christopher, hi. Hi, John. Uh, lots to talk about. And I thought maybe we could begin, Benjamin, by asking you to give us an update on on what the circumstances are. You know, in my script, I mentioned things like gang violence and economic hardships and cholera. What, what, what is the the landscape in Haiti right now? How bad a situation is it?
1: Yeah, it's hard to exaggerate the struggles facing the Haitian people right now. The list that you offered is is short and terrifying um, and really only scratches the surface of what's happening in Haiti. You know, the, the impacts that are cascading of the gang violence, which includes fuel shortages, which includes worsening inflation for food that makes poverty have much greater impacts and hunger um, much more severe throughout the country, even to the point of starvation in certain areas. This strains already minimal medical facilities. There's joblessness. It's hard to get around the country. But I think maybe worst of all is the sense of hopelessness, both within Haiti and then in the international community. This kind of paralysis that that list is so long and the political crisis there has lasted so long that there really aren't answers.
0: Cindy, and and since the assassination, uh, we still don't have closure on what happened in that case. Some suspects have been arrested, some have been extradited. Uh, Tell us what what we can expect as far as political stability in the wake of the assassination.
2: Well, I think that's one of the million-dollar questions. There's been a, a government that does not want to um, join in a coalition which is being called for by a broad alliance of um, Haitian citizens and and, uh, civic leaders and and politicians um, called the Montana Accord. This is something they signed. And the real sort of question is, you know, do you call new elections to give a government legitimacy? But there are many people who say there's just no conditions for elections because of the kinds of rampant gang violence and insecurity that Benjamin was just describing. Um, So the Montana Accord Group has actually called for a coalition government, a consensus government, to stabilize the situation um, before there are elections. And the the U.S. government seems to be a little bit on the fence in terms of wanting to push for um, early elections. Um, as a mechanism to create a legitimate government. And I would have to tend to agree with the people who say that the conditions um, for anything resembling free elections are are not there. The other thing I I would mention is that I think that, you know, the international community is um, uh, trying to figure out what to do to be helpful because there have been significant efforts by the United Nations especially, um, to create observer missions and um, both political and military, uh, to train police, to train the military, and to kind of create um, some kind of uh, governability. And those missions have been withdrawn, and Haiti's crisis continues. And so I think there's a bit of Haiti fatigue, and we'll talk probably later about the Dominican Republic. That is one country that absolutely does not have Haiti fatigue. It's right. It shares the island that we refer to as Hispaniola, and the Haitian crisis is a huge crisis uh, for um, the the government of the Dominican Republic and the the population of of the DR.
1: Benjamin, I, I think it's a really important point, John, that the. Paralysis in the international response is not from indifference to the suffering of the Haitian people. It's really for lack of new ideas and for a very poor record of interventions. I mean, this goes back to the United States invasion and occupation of Haiti in the early 20th century, the multi billion dollar response to the earthquake in 2010, the long lasting UN peacekeeping efforts in Haiti. I mean, everything we've talked about that faces Haiti right now is it despite of, and in some cases because of, failed international support. So I think what you're seeing right now is an international community throwing up its hands because it really feels like it has tried everything and failed. Uh, Canada
0: has uh, rolled up its sleeves, Chris, so to speak, not just thrown up its hands and has really offered a lot of assistance. Could you talk to us about why Canada is so engaged in Haiti and, and what their help has or what their support has done to this moment?
3: Well, over a number of years, John, uh, Haitian immigrants had, because of their French, a special preference for getting into Canada. And as the community, particularly around Montreal uh, in Quebec, grew, there was a sort of uh, channel, uh, a a local support group that could take Haitians and help them to find jobs and get settled in in Quebec, even though obviously the weather is much colder and more dismal. Uh, But it was a relatively successful safety valve over the years for a while during the Devalier dictatorship it was where uh, some of the old frop people tied to the Devaliers went because they wanted they needed to get out of haiti uh and some of them were possible bad guys uh Many of them, but it took them out of the politics and helped Haiti to move on. And Canada has always been very uh, focused on the nuances of Haitian politics and tried to engage. But the one thing that comes up again and again is because of these now Haitian Canadians as a significant population group, there is a lot of people-to-people charitable action, fundraisers. You see the Catholic Church, uh, other churches raising money, trying to send development assistance. You see volunteers, including a lot of young Quebecers or young Canadians who go volunteer on the ground, do what they can to help. It's been a long-standing tradition, and I think it's, um, it's it, it actually qualifies for that term we use too many times of a special relationship. Uh, they really do have a special relationship, and even in the sort of before the assassination, the four friends of Haiti that you typically saw were uh, Canada, the United States, Venezuela, and uh, France. And of those, France is still watching nervously. The U.S. and Canada don't know what to do. And frankly, Venezuela has been much less important in recent years because they've had their own problems.
0: Chris, one thing you didn't mention are are these reconnaissance uh, missions from Canada using aircraft to try to disrupt gangs or, or in other ways help restore more order. Uh, I think in our pre-show discussion, you referred to those as controversial. Can you elaborate for the the sake of our listeners?
3: Yes, absolutely. This has been the story that, that Canadians, as well as Americans, have been following. Secretary of State Tony Blinken went to Canada in October and had meetings with Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister. And in those meetings, he asked Canada to take on an important role as a trusted ally. One with regard to Ukrainian re- reconstruction post-conflict, and the Canadians nodded yesterday. That, that's still far out, but we're, we're getting ready. And the other was to take the lead on Haiti. And the focus in particular was to try to build a consensus within the United Nations. Um, Canada, like the United States, loathed to put boots on the ground without some kind of sanction, but the United Nations itself has been struggling to find the kind of support that would allow for a resolution to create another mission in Haiti. The United States... Uh, diplomat, Helen Lalim, was asked, she's a former US ambassador in Angola, was asked by the Secretary General of the United Nations to become a special envoy, and she was hoping to be able to work with the Canadians, the Americans, and maybe some other forces to put together a kind of mission. That mission did not come together, and we're still struggling in the United Nations. There doesn't seem to be an appetite for getting involved. So... That led to a January escalation with Canada sending armored personnel carriers to support the Haitian police, give them vehicles in which they could uh, potentially survive firefights with some of the gangs and the organized crime activities that they're facing there. And then most recently, uh, just in the last three days, Canada sent a Royal Canadian Air Force plane. It's a CP-140, which is an Aurora observation uh, plane. And they've been doing regular overflights for a number of days. And Canada's been quite uh, straightforward. Uh, Defense Minister Anita Anand has said that they've been using that to gather intelligence on the ground to intercept some communications and to try to get a better picture of what's happening uh, in Haiti. But it's been controversial. Uh, many Haitians wonder, a bit like the Chinese balloon floating over the over the United States in the last little while, you know, what is this? What are they picking up and, and what's going to happen because of it? So it's become quite a quite a story in Canada and in Haiti as well.
0: Benjamin, regionally, uh, is the Canadian involvement seen as a a plus, a minus? uh, Or is it where you talked about earlier, people are throwing up their hands and they're really not sure what will work?
1: Yeah, I think there is a demand for answers and and they're not on offer within Latin America and the Caribbean in and of itself. Cindy can talk in a bit more detail about Haiti's neighbor in Hispaniola, the Dominican Republic, which is certainly not looking to stabilize what's happening in Haiti, but rather focused on mitigating the spillovers across the border on that shared island. Chile, a country that had played a monumental role in Haiti, particularly in peacekeeping in the past, has a focus, understandably, on some of its own challenges and, and political controversies right now. So, what I would say is, I think you know, U.S. and Canadian responses in general are welcome, particularly because Haiti itself has been asking since last October for some kind of international, robust security response. The question is, is, is whether anyone is willing to do more than what Canada has done already, and, and whether it's a good idea to do so. But what I would say is, you know, right now the the Latin America, the United States are seeing the direct impacts, particularly from migration. Hundreds of Haitians are being stopped on boats. Many are dying along the way trying to reach the United States. The United States reluctantly said that it would have a program to accept something you know, like 30,000 people from Haiti, Cuba, Nicaragua and Venezuela, but only if they came through proper channels. Now you see these terrible scenes in Haiti of thousands of Haitians crowding these migration centers, desperate to have access to those um, few slots and to have a, a safe and legal way to enter the United States, which is all to say, John, that I think anyone is willing to step up right now with a reasonable response would probably be welcome throughout this hemisphere.
0: And Cindy, that leads us back to you, and you teed this up earlier, talking about the the neighbor, the Dominican Republic, and the response there and the concerns there. Uh, tell tell us more.
2: Sure. The Dominican Republic is also a developing country. It's certainly not as poor as Haiti, but it is not in a position to just have waves after wave, wave after wave of of uh, Haitian migrants. Crossing over into into the Dominican Republic um, in search of employment in the tourism sector, or you know trying to eke out a living in whatever way they can, and this has been um, an ongoing problem, not just because of Haitian instability at the time of the hiv AIDS epidemic. Um, There were also, you know, great concerns in the Dominican Republic about Haitians, you know, coming over into the DR because of, uh, uh, for public health reasons. And the Dominican government has been um, quite aggressive in trying to fortify the border, sending helicopters, troops, um, talking about building a wall just in a desperate attempt Um, to keep out numbers of Haitians that it can't possibly absorb. Um, And, you know, there's a little bit of an echo, you know, in terms of the U.S. immigration debate, but I think the DR is much more impacted um, by the collapse of the state in in Haiti than just about anything that the United States or um, other countries uh, in North America certainly have, have faced. I mean, there's, it's really, Haiti is a real outlier. There are not failed States for the most part, um, in Latin America and the Caribbean and Haiti is a real exception. So there's, you know, a a desire to try to do something to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Um, but also a great reluctance as you know, we've all been saying because so much has already been tried and still Haiti is in the place that it is now.
0: You know, invoking Humpty Dumpty, I have to say, Cindy, as I've been listening to the three of you, that's the thought that keeps running through my mind. How do you begin to put this back together again? Chris, where, where do you even start? Well, I think
3: one of the most interesting developments has been to see Jamaica offer to put some troops together to be part of a stabilization force. This has been the challenge. There have been a lot of uh, discussions about how do you put boots on the ground and a fear that if you sent... Um, a largely white American and Canadian contingent, it would be very much alien and outside. The problem for a country like Jamaica is they don't necessarily have landing equipment, amphibious troops, et cetera. So what we're starting to see is people being willing to put professionals into the field, but looking for Canada, maybe the United States to help with the transport, the logistics support to help them out. And that I think is really promising. Um, As Cindy was sort of alluding to, if you look at the Um, At the region, there are these interesting linguistic and cultural divides and the Caribbean is full of them. There's the English speaking Caribbean, the French speaking Caribbean, the Spanish speaking Caribbean, and often, even though those islands are close to each other, those are different worlds. And to see Jamaica step up, largely because they could reach out to the Canadians as a fellow Commonwealth member part of the old British uh, empire, where there has been a tradition of joint training and cooperation with Jamaica over the years. Maybe it's those ties that we don't always pay attention to in the Caribbean, but that may give us the beginnings of a much more Caribbean solution for a Caribbean challenge in Haiti.
0: On this notion of uh, peacekeepers, is that a fair way to describe it? Uh, Chile has had a historic role in, in peacekeeping in Haiti. Uh, are they engaged currently or are they part of that fatigue that you talked about, Benjamin? Yeah,
1: I think right now the, the key actors are the United States and Canada and above all Canada. And you've heard what Canada has been up to lately, and that's been far more than anyone else has done. But but I, I do think it's important, John, to point out that there is some political conversation going on in Haiti. And fundamentally, as important as it is to address the humanitarian emergency, as important as it is to address gang violence, I think we have to also recognize that the lack of legitimacy of Haiti's government is, is the root of the problem there, and you will not have a solution without some kind of political reconciliation and eventually free and fair elections. And fortunately, late in December of last year, there was this December 21st Accord where Haitians considered some potential roadmap toward free and fair elections, toward a conversation that involves civil society groups and religious groups and unions and others. The United States, Canada have been supporting that. They've been sanctioning bad actors. The UN Security Council has gotten engaged, but they've also been trying to create a robust process involving good actors who are in Haiti with Haiti's best interests in mind. And so I do think that we should recognize that solving the long-term problems in Haiti are also important. We can't just address some of the acute crises. Christopher
3: and I think that's, John, that's been a point that Bob Ray, the former foreign minister who's Canada's ambassador at the United Nations, has really been making and trying to create a, a sense of how do we not just temp, deal with the emergency, but how do we help Haiti to transition long term? And um, it's been a remarkable job to see Bob Ray, former Premier of Ontario, long long-standing figure in Canadian politics, now at the UN, and really bringing the rhetoric and and trying to exhort a real step up from other countries around the region, which I think is tremendous. But on the issue of peacekeeping, which famously Canadian Prime Minister Lester Pearson won a Nobel Prize for coming up with the idea of peacekeeping, uh, his observation back then in the 60s is still true, which is peacekeepers need a peace to keep. And to send them to Haiti now, and before there's a political accord, I think is, is really just sending them into a firefight where if we can really help get a political agreement, as Benjamin says, that's the beginning of creating a kind of peace that then you can see the outside community maybe supporting uh, a sort of ceasefire among the gangs, something that would create some space for peace to emerge.
0: And does that require a stable government to negotiate with to create uh, a ceasefire? In other words, I, what, I'm, what I'm hearing from all of you is that it sounds as if any reconstruction of Humpty Dumpty, so to speak, begins with stability uh, in terms of the governance of Haiti. And then the question becomes, how close or far away are we from that
1: possibility? I think waiting for kind of perfect conditions in terms of the governance of Haiti will be a perpetual process. Um i mean you you have right now, and you know uh following the two thousand and twenty one assassination of the president. This acting prime minister, who many see as an illegitimate leader, some people suspect as having been involved in the assassination itself. The criminal justice system has made zero progress in investigating. In fact, it's the United States criminal justice system that actually has, you know, built cases against some people for their alleged involvement. Which is all to say, John, that I think we're not gonna get the kind of perfect political conditions where you can say, sure, you could have a great free and fair election, you could have a peaceful accord, and you can have peacekeeping to keep everyone in line. Instead, I think you need to push forward in the conditions you have and try to build bridges right now and eventually get an election and get more legitimacy for the government and then support it in all the ways we've talked about.
0: Which, Cindy, sounds a lot like what you described from the Dominican Republic. They need to contain the problem, even if you can't fix it in any short term.
2: Right. The approach that's been taken by the Dominican Republic is very much to keep to do everything they can to keep more Haitians from entering the DR, itself a developing country, and like the rest of the hemisphere, you know, hit by, uh, by the COVID pandemic and by high food and energy prices and, and uh, inflation and all the kinds of things that have really um, uh, put Latin America and the Caribbean on its back heel. Um, tourism has not recovered essential to the, the, the Dominican economy. So it's just not a country in a position to absorb a lot more um, hungry, Unhealthy, poor people coming from Haiti, um, and the, I, I totally agree that if you wait for perfect conditions in Haiti, you'll never have um, you'll never have elections. But I do think that you know there needs to be some kind of interim process um, where the current prime minister steps aside, um, turns over power to a, a coalition government, and they try to put things um, on, on more of an even keel. Um, and you know, there's just, um, uh, I don't know, I guess I, I would consider myself among those that feels like I want to throw up my hands. I mean, all of the things that have been tried have, have been tried for a very, very long time. Um, corruption in Haiti has gotten worse and worse since 2017. Um, it's also a country that's, you know. Um, afflicted by climate change, by devastating earthquakes, um, by a ratio of population to land that is completely unsustainable. I mean, it's just not a a viable political or economic entity. So what you do in those circumstances is something that's really way, way, way above my pay grade.
1: Benjamin. Yeah, I think the big international responses that are being contemplated and debated, you know, are very likely to fail. And I think, again, that's why there is such hesitance, including even on the part of Canada, which has been, you know, very ambitious in terms of the role it's willing to play. But that's why I would return to the importance of diplomacy. And there, I think the United States, above all, but other Latin American and Caribbean countries could contribute, which is to say you need functioning dialogues in Haiti involving civil society, involving all political actors. And that is your path to free and fair elections, to legit governance and to conditions where bigger types of international support become feasible. Christopher.
3: It's interesting, John, because I I think this is one of those examples where everyone focuses on U.S.-China tensions, Russia-Ukraine, European Union versus uh, trying to help the Ukrainians. We have a lot of big items on the agenda, but the challenge is you can't ignore problems like this. I mean, not just because they tug at your heartstrings, but because world order is an interconnected piece and you can't have these situations left to fester because we're gonna deal with the big issues first. You can't triage in that way and you have to have someone work on, on all the pieces and uh, not to toot the Canadian's horn, although you know, I like the Canadians. I mean, I think it's really helpful to have allies who are helping on other big projects, but who really have the bandwidth to take on a mission like this. And um, In a way, I think sometimes there's this myth that the United States is a superpower, is the Superman of international relations, but reality is much more like an Avengers movie where you have all these different characters and some of them play bit parts, but those bits are important or could turn out to be plot points that matter. And Canada here is playing a, a niche role, but it's one that's really important to the team overall and uh, therefore i think important to world order going forward that countries like canada are willing to step in e- even if it is a difficult and maybe a thankless task
0: you know the the compulsion for uh, someone like me a, a broadcaster and journalist by trade who uh, moderates discussions among experts like you is to try to find some neat tidy package ending or, or an outpoint and uh, it's more elusive than ever on a topic like this which is so uh, uh Serious, uh, so many aspects to it, so complex, and uh, everything that all three of you have said today indicates there's no linear path to solving the problem. So I won't put any of you on the spot to provide some neat, tidy package. But I will just ask before we close if there is a final thought that anyone would like to share.
3: I'll I'll just mention one. I remember listening to one of the former presidents of the Dominican Republic, Leonel Fernandez uh, at one point say that during the Cold War, you know, many countries in the Caribbean worried about American interventions, but that in the post-Cold War, the bigger concern was American indifference because the region needed so much engagement and they knew it in order to prosper. And I think this is a case where as bleak as the picture seems to be, you still see the United States, Canada and others engaging they're not indifferent to the situation they may not know what to do but the fact that they're at the table and trying to work together on something is at least a glimmer of hope so maybe not the the great happy ending but it means we haven't given up and that counts for something
2: I would very much agree with with Chris. I mean, and, and thank goodness that Canada is is really playing a leadership role when others seem to be, you know, exhausted. Um, I would say also that one should, you know, redouble efforts to support all of the humanitarian groups on the ground, international humanitarian groups, and 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 and, and Haitian humanitarian groups. Um, you know, to help relieve the suffering of the of the Haitian people. This has been a chronic Problem in terms of the gangs intercepting um, shipments of aid and and uh, wanting to either steal them or control you know the distribution to win loyalty you know among the population and and uh, that that is something to to tackle maybe first um, you know in a, a parallel to the efforts to build some kind of political consensus. And I know that the Biden administration is very much engaged on on Haiti and is looking for a solution and sends senior officials there all the time. Um, What that solution is going to be is, you know, beyond beyond my imagination. Well, you
0: know, Cindy's point about there still can be things done on the humanitarian front that matter. You know, there are living people suffering right now and you can help those while we figure out how to
1: sort out the government problems in the long term. Uh, Benjamin. No, I think it's good addressing urgent food scarcity, providing medical support for those suffering from cholera. It's all urgently necessary and appropriate. What I think we want to avoid is a cynical approach to Haiti where we help just enough so there's no migration crisis. And and I think the kinds of political solutions that Haiti needs and that we can help, you know, we can help bring about are, are the kinds of solutions for the long term. And so right now there is a migration crisis. And so we'll get, you know, just enough attention to address some of those urgent needs. But I don't want us to lose sight of the role that the United States, Canada, Chile and others can play in solving the political dysfunction that, again, has brought us to where we are. We're going to end with that challenge from Benjamin Gadan
0: to uh, you know, keep your eyes on the prize of the bigger solution. Cindy, Benjamin, Chris, thank you. We'll look forward to learning more from you in future episodes. Uh, this episode of America's 360 was produced by Oscar Cruz, Cecily Fasinella, and Zoe Reed. They were assisted by Aldrin Ballesteros, Emma Brown, and Sarah Doshi. Uh, and a special thanks to our colleague Cecily uh, Fasanella, who will be moving on. This is the last episode of America's 360 that she'll be involved in. And she was here almost from the birth of the program, uh, initially serving us as an intern. And now she's become a full staff member and is uh, taking her career elsewhere. And we want to all thank her, wish her well, let her know we'll miss her. And we're sure that it's going to be a dazzling career. We'll check in on her later. Uh, We'll be back one way or another in a couple weeks with another episode from your favorite Western Hemisphere Focus podcast. Until then, for all of us at America's 360 and the Wilson Center, I'm John Molesky. Thanks for your time and interest. You have been listening to America's 360, a podcast about the innumerable ties among the nations of the Western Hemisphere. You can subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. To learn more about our programs, please visit wilsoncenter.org. And please join us again next time for another episode of America's 360.